The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello there and welcome to another edition of the Cambridge Film Show broadcasting here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Thanks to Julian and Lucy for the last couple of hours but now grab a beverage of choice, a comfortable place to hang, settle in and check out opinions of film, films good, bad and indifferent here on the only film show that matters in the South East, the Cambridge Film Show. March is here, the air is softer, only one more award show to go before the dresses are packed away and we have a fistful of films to look at, seven in total, packing them into the multiplexes, attracting critical attention at the arts or simply streaming on whichever device you like. I am Emma Marchant, hosting along with the always gorgeous Ashley Whitaker. Hello. Co-hosting is, is the way ahead, you heard it here first. And in the more important seats are our delightful reviewers, so Vicky Eyre, Hello. Will Johnson. Hello. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. And Mark Walsh. Hello. Let us do the thing and give you top tips. You see what I did there? I like it. <laughs> For this hour, we'll be taking in Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut as he brings Adonis Creed's story back to the screen in Creed 3. Looking at the baby trafficking trade and career in Broker, Hirokazu Korida's follow-up to shoplifters and inspecting spooky goings-on in We Have a Ghost. We'll also take a very swift look at the ethics of documentary making in Subject, see what is ruining Ashley Madekwe's perfect life in The Strays and finally take in the heartbreaking fallout when two 13-year-old boys' friendship comes under examination in Lucas Dont's Close. But let's begin with a bear and a rampage and a title which I'm imagining does exactly what it says on the tin. Watch out, Georgia. It's Cocaine Bear. Medic! Oh, Jesus. What is that? Beth, we should go. Millions of dollars worth of cocaine fell from the sky this morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. There's more this out there. They dumped it somewhere. I'm looking for my daughter. Forest is a dangerous place. Hey, Henry, check it out. Something got into it. A deer, maybe. So that was some of the trailer for Cocaine Bear. In 1985 in northern Georgia, $2 million worth of cocaine was dropped from the drug smuggler's plane, found and eaten by a black bear who then died. However, Cocaine Bear tells us the fictionalised account of what could have happened if the bear had managed to take himself on a cocaine fueled killing spree. Elizabeth Banks directs an all-star cast, including Ray Liotta in his last, round, last role and £175 of CGI black bear. Mark, as it's been so long since we've had you on the show, let's start with you. I mean, is this more than just a high concept title? Um, I'm not sure it is, but when it's such a good high concept, why not just run with it and see how much fun you can have? And I think Elizabeth Banks does have a huge amount of fun here. Uh, I, it's nice to see her actually getting into a, a property she can actually just put her own stamp on and do her own thing with, because she's uh, previously directed Pitch Perfect 3 and also Charlie's Angels. And so, you know, a, a continuation of a series and a, a remake. So, you know, having something where there's a blank canvas where she can just come in, have some fun uh, and make the most of it, I think is quite nice. Uh, she's got a, a 
nice eclectic cast supporting uh, and you never get the feeling there's anyone in particular who's safe which is also quite nice to see that anything could happen and quite a lot of things do uh, you know it's it's not setting out to be high art it's just setting out to be a lot of fun and I thought it was you actually did answer my, my next question there which I was going to say being directed by Elizabeth Banks because following Pitch Perfect like you said and Charlie's Angels and she is quite a high profile name among women directors let's say due to the fact that she had a you know, successful acting career and has come or has a successful acting career and has come to direct so I was wondering should she be looking for something more challenging or is it okay for her just to be going out and having a blast I mean, this, this idea of, you know, she's not allowed to kind of direct a cheesy B-movie seems slightly odd to me, because if I was going to be a director, that's the first thing I'd start with. I might make some high art later on, but, yeah, I, I'm somebody who goes to horror film festivals every year, and this is absolutely my comfort zone for watching. So, you know, I applaud her for steering into this as a director. Uh, and because she goes for it full throttle. You know, back in the day, I reckon this would have been an 18 film. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, some of the things you see on screen here, uh, I, was, I was actually checking the... the the BBC rating after thinking 15 god kids are so lucky these days teenagers don't know they're born frankly <laughs> uh, because yeah I, I would have I've had to just wait to watch this on home on video uh, I wouldn't have been able to go and see it in a cinema and I'm very jealous of all those youngsters who get to go and see uh, a bear dismembering people at regular intervals uh, and the, the joy of the cinema screen Vicky you are one of our um, bigger horror fans in you know amongst the range of reviews we have here so yeah were you pleasantly surprised too by just how gory this all is what sorry is or how horrific it is I am I enjoyed how gory it was um, I didn't know how far it would go but it's pretty clear within the first I'm going to say two minutes um, what's about to unfold and happen and you're in for a ride from the very start you've got um, a randomly star-studded cast um, with like very quirky little support roles No, there's no one that is truly the main character I would say they all have their main character moments but Margot Martindale as Ranger Liz is absolutely superb um, um, there's some wonderful gory things that happen in a, a lovely little ranger hut up in the in the mountain that I've said. So um, I was pleasantly, pleasant, pleasantly surprised by the gore, and so was everyone on my screen last night. Okay, Will, that is too extreme. That's two very positive reviews, really, here for Cocaine Bear. This sort of uh, many of the reviews, of course, have compared it title-wise to Snakes on a Plane. Some, perhaps, not as favourably as it could be, saying that perhaps it doesn't live up to its title in in the same kind of way, but. These guys are saying it did do. What did you think? Well, after I first saw the trailer, I thought, I've got to give it a go. And at the end of the day, this is just a tale um, that had me chuckling from start to finish because it throws in a mixture of children, teenage, wayward teenage, teenagers, police officers, just has everything. And just throw them all together. You get gore, slapstick humour, and it's an absolute blast all, for all 95 minutes. I think that's great. It sounds to me like a little bit like it's kind of a throwback to those more like those B-movies that you'd see in the 80s and 90s with, like you say, this cast with people like Kerry Russell, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, both in enormously successful TV shows on um, um, old, old name, Rich, Mar Margot Martindale, like you said, Ray Liotta, um, Christoph Hishu, the amazing <laughs> Norwegian actor from Game of Thrones. I mean, it is a heck of a cast. But is there a danger that they're having more fun making it than we are having watching it? watching it? I can only think they must have had an immense amount of fun making it if they're having more fun than we have watching it. Uh, and it's interesting you make the Snakes on a Plane comparison as well, because I think that's a prime example of a high concept which didn't live up to its expectations, uh, which uh, you know, had probably more from Samuel L. Jackson uh, dropping some naughty swear words and more excitement from that than it did from actually delivering snakes on a plane. And it's such a shame. And actually, 
when you think about it, what do you expect from Cocaine Bear? Because as you say, in real life, the bear took some cocaine and died. <laughs> yeah, if it was genuinely living up to that concept, that year it would be a yeah. documentary about a bear going through its death a throes. Pretty dull film. <laughs> well, it would. So, so actually, it, it's making sure that it not only fulfils a sort of the general expectation, but it's just an entertaining ride. Well, I'm pleased to hear that, and of course, as you pointed out, will a brisk 95 minutes, which is a sadly, sadly rare thing these days at the cinema. So, I think that is thoroughly recommended from our three reviewers here in the cinema. Cocaine Bear is a certificate at 15 but be, be warned by Mark a pretty gory certificate 15 and is showing at the light and the view so now it's over to Ash where we're going to talk about the continuing saga of Creed my life living out my wildest dreams Bianca Rocky my dad this is built on their shoulders Hey, my man, can I help you? Let me get an autograph. Nah, I ain't signing an autograph, so you get off my car. You don't remember me, huh? Damien. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I kept myself in shape. I still got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. Thank you. So, we are back in the Rocky universe, metaverse. What do we call it when it's like a, com a comic book film? What's that word? Universe. 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 That thing. Okay. <laughs> so, Michael B. Jordan's back as Adonis doing some boxing and Tessa Thompson's back worrying about him, basically. It's Creed 3, but it's Rocky 9. Yeah? Will, you know what you're talking about more. Can you place this properly in the timeline of Stallone in the 70s being cool and now we're here with Michael B. Jordan in 2023? Where are we? Um, well, we seem to be at the end of this timeline because it starts off with Rocky in the late 70s and he's basically trained up Adonis Creed to where he is now. So, as I said, we're at number nine and hopefully should be at the end of the line as well. Okay. We're, well, sports films I'm not wildly big on anyway. I do love the old Disney version of them. So you've got Field of Dreams and all that kind of rubbish, and they're all very sweet and twee. People ride for Rocky. I have seen the original. It's okay. Um, Mark, in terms of fandom, were you a ride or die for the original Rockies? Does this live up to it? Are you upset with the modern sheen that's been put on these gritty sports films from decades ago? Uh, again, I'm going to challenge the, the conception that a sports film has to necessarily be gritty because <laughs> uh, you've quoted Field of Dreams, which is the least gritty film I can think of off it's the top of my adorable. head. It's uh, adorable. It is, uh, but this is this is not Field of Dreams. What it is, uh, is actually a series really finding its comfortable place because we had the original Rocky films, of which there were uh, five plus Rocky Balboa, and then Sylvester Stallone came in to be the trainer of Michael B. Jordan's character Adonis Creed. So you have that passing of the baton. This is now the first film that doesn't have Sylvester so Stallone. Stallone passes in and out of it so we haven't just taken the franchise he, away it's woven in nicely from he, he was the trainer in the first two right. but this is now the first film where where actually 
uh, Creed standalone. So the setup here, we flash back to uh, a fight in South Africa about five years ago, as well as to some incidents from Adonis's childhood as well. Uh, and the relationship he's, he's formed with somebody and then let go. Uh, he had a friend uh, who's uh, is known as Dame. This is played by Jonathan Majors, uh, who I'm just absolutely in awe of, frankly, for yeah. everything he's doing at the moment. And uh, the, the two of them uh, were involved in an incident with the police uh, about 20 years ago uh, and Dame got arrested and uh, Donnie managed to run away. And that fractured their relationship at the time. Uh, Jonathan Major's character Dame is now out of prison and looking to get back in the ring and uh, hoping that, that Adonis will give him his second chance effectively. Uh, but of course there's much more to it than that. I think for me, where these films have their strengths, you know, I, I liked the original Rocky films. You know, when you get into things like Rocky three and four, they're incredibly cheesy, but they're entertaining. But Creed was fantastic. Uh, for me, still the best of the nine films uh, because it really did play on themes of family and and friendship and relationships, and you know, had a great performance from Stallone, but also you know, fantastic work from Michael B. Jordan. Now seeing him stepping into the director's chair as well and putting his own stamp on things is great as well. The, the one thing I struggled to remember was Creed 2, which was five years ago, and I've apparently seen, because I rated it on IMDb. <laughs> but that, that one just Your was, letterbox account says otherwise. <laughs> uh, yes, it slipped, slipped the memory, but I suspect this one will last a bit longer in the memory okay. because of the personal stamp that Michael B. Jordan puts on in, in two ways for me. First of all, in terms of actually making it a very personal story, it's not just about him as a fighter and his relationship with Jonathan Major's character. It's also Tessa Thompson as his now wife, been a girlfriend in previous films, and his uh, daughter, who, who's completely deaf. So their relationship as a family and her struggles to, to get her career going in the music industry again, her hearing loss worsens. Uh, but also his stamp as a director, because he's not just regurgitating the same action sequences that we've seen eight times and so it's quite dull he's trying to do different things and the final fight goes in some some very stylized places and some some very unusual directions he, he's clearly watched a bit of manga and things like that he's he's actually trying to make it an interesting watch you know ryan cogler did that fantastically with creed there was one of the fights where it was about a four minute single tracking shot uh, which is something we've not seen before and again michael b jordan is trying to do different things with it here and, and keep it visually interesting these stories work best if they are sort of basically quite simple and straight down the line but this yeah, idea of two people who, who got separated and now have a complicated relationship works quite well in context and, and you, know, you find yourself rooting for the protagonist as you should do in a sports film <laughs> The formula works I was going to wonder Will um, Mark mentioned about getting into the director's chair we know Sylvester Stallone ploughed a load of his own money into the originals wrote them is it a bit of a Michael Jordan, is it too much a vehicle for him now? He's the director, he's the lead character, wrote the theme tune, sang the theme tune. Do we have too much of that or do the other characters give a lot to the film? Does everyone else get their own time to develop a story? I think everybody gets their time to shine in this. And as mentioned before, it's his directorial debut and he did, he did it very, very well. And a little shout out, obviously, to Jonathan Majors because I know mm -hmm. our friend Yosra loves him to bits. <laughs> and um, she also loves both Michael B. Jordan. She's very upset she can't be here to review. I this know, one. Um, but they well, they're both buffed up for this, and um, they look pretty good. Um, so buff, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe the film has past shades of um, of other Rocky films, because um, similarly, Rocky Three, where obviously he has a fear of his opponent and needs to actually let go of his fear. Um, and then Rocky IV, where he takes on a dangerous opponent who could actually destroy his legacy. And then also Rocky Balboa, where he has to come out of retirement in order to actually just fulfill this destiny of being the best 
and showing he's still got it. What's the relationship then between those two? Because in the originals, didn't we have a bit of a red scare thing where we've got a Russian up against a, an all-American guy? What's the dynamic? What's their, the hatred between these two opponents? Um, I think it's more of a tale of I think animosity because due to them being chi- well, children um, growing up and then one runs away from a police situation and the other one feels abandoned so he goes to jail for 18 years their lives go separate ways yeah separate ways so he feels a bit of entitlement and resentment towards Creed for letting him down but then there's more of a story to to it that you'll find out later on so is this they're they're kind of modernising the hatred between different parties in the originals up until the present day does that work or is it a bit on the nose do you think um no well Basically, it has nothing to do with, obviously, the past. Okay. Unlike uh, Creed 2, which was... Was that Drago? That was Drago, yes. Um, and it actually features um, Drago in this one as well, but in a kind I'm of supporting, as if I supporting know cast, yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Dolph Lundgren's character from the original Rocky ah, films... I know who uh, Dolph Lundgren is, in, got it. In, in, the same, in the same way that, um, that uh, Michael B. John's character is the son of Apollo Creed from the first two yes! Rocky films, uh, we also get the son of, of uh, Drago. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, every, everyone's having children. I mean, there are even <laughs> hints. Uh, uh, Miller Davis-Kent, who plays Amara, the daughter, we do see her taking an interest. She's watched all Dad's fights. Okay. I can see in Creed Seven it'll be her in the ring and it'll be a really great empowering development we're on Rocky 9 and we haven't even had Field of Dreams 2 (laughs) but yeah I was wondering so I think Will said a little something I think I I don't want to ask a question that might be a spoiler but are we thinking this might be the end of the Creed franchise with these characters at the helm but we might still go on I think doing another one it, it ended in a great fashion but obviously there's always room for one more but I don't know, it won't be the same as Creed 3, I think. No, and even you really liked it, Mark, and you mentioned having women in the forefront of maybe upcoming um, versions of this film. Are you still enjoying this kind of sports film? It still has a place for you, it's still entertaining. It, it does. I, I love sports films as a genre. They do give you that that sort of dopamine hit gratification of, of you know watching something enjoyable. The joy of the Rocky films is you're, you're, they have that slightly grey area of you're never quite sure who's going to be victorious. Right. So you, you do come in having that sense of suspense. Uh, and in interviews, uh, Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan have said they want to keep working together. So okay. possibly on another one of these. But again, it's trying to find ways to keep it fresh because they have you know taken the, the relationship between the the two leads in a different direction so it's not just replicating what we've had in the previous films if they're going to do another one of these they need to take the same evolution maybe they both become trainers and they're training young protégés or something mm. like that uh, you know if, uh, if, if Ryan Coughlin is, is sort of listening to this and uh, you know want to cut me in 10% then feel free you should take <laughs> your advice for sure Mark so that was Creed 3 and top praise indeed I think from both the reviewers who saw it we're going to have a little pace change now and Emma is going to tell you all about Broker Yeah, 
little taste of the trailer there for Broker, which unless you are, of course, fluent in Korean, it will have been a struggle, but the music was very pretty, so we thought we'd play it. Following his Palm Door winning Shoplifters and then English language debut The Truth, Japanese director Hirokatsu Korida has moved to Korea for Broker, a drama, I believe with some comedy in it as well, based around the Korean practice of baby boxes, which are put out by churches in which for people to leave their unwanted babies. Parasite Song Kang-ho plays Sang-hyeon, who volunteers at a local church that has a baby box. But he also sometimes, along with his younger partner Dong-soo, Gang Dong-wan, takes a baby to offer on the adoption black market. But when he does it this time, the mother of the baby plus two cops who are on their trail also end up involved, and this film sort of turns into a kind of Korean road trip. Vicky, this is a difficult subject obviously it's essentially sort of about human trafficking really but is it dealt with with sensitivity well i feel like uh this is corita's first uh korean language film and he's he's placed it in korea mainly because of the subject matter that it is uh, baby boxes are just so much more common in in this country and um I honestly feel if it was done by any other director this would be a thriller film because well who you're essentially um rooting for at the end of the day are child traffickers um that are trying to auction the child off on a black market but because it's corrida and it's it's done with gentleness for a lot and like a, a slow really gorgeous pacing and each person is dealt with such delicateness um it's it's completely um yeah, it's completely gentle in, in how it's done. And I just, yeah, roots off to Corrida for making that happen. I mean, yeah, as far as I understand, this is stuffed full of famous Korean actors. It but is. obviously led by Song Kang-ho, who, like mm. you say, it's hard after seeing him in Parasite, it's hard to only, you know, he's, he's a very hard actor to which it's not to fit, you know, not to feel sympathy towards what I'm trying to say. So it's not just the writing, it's also the casting in this, I think. So yeah, so Song Kang-ho is obviously the big star of this film, but um, he also chose uh, Ji Eun Lee, who's also known as her stage name, IU, who's probably the biggest female K-pop star in all of Korea. Um, she, is she in black and pink? Pink and black? No, she's not in black pink. Um, she's a solo female artist and she, she bra- she's branched out into a lot of Korean dramas that you can find on Netflix and she has started acting but this is her first like film debut and she absolutely, she almost overwhelms Song Kang-ho um, because I feel like this is her story, you know, this is her child that's being put up for adoption and she is the mother that is following them and brokering her own child and there's so many twists and turns throughout this film that you don't expect coming. I feel like a lot of Korean films I do end up watching, they're the least obvious films and there's about four different sideline plots in this that just are absolutely astounding in the... Um, if you read it on paper, you wouldn't believe it. Um, but because it's Corrida and because he has this cast and they all support each other as a family throughout this, they it all just works. Marvellous. Mark, Corrida is often talked about as a, as, a, as a sort of follow-up to the golden age of Japanese cinema, which now is in the 1950s, so probably nearly 70 years ago. And they also talk a lot about the fact that his films are based around the theme of family. Um like it's so so long after maybe the, the, this golden age of Japanese cinema, can we as a Western audience who is you know I mean so far we've discussed Cocaine Bear and Creed Three, is there still something to be found for us to be relevant in these themes and filmmaking? I, I think it's relevant if you are part of a family. 
or indeed even if you're not if if somehow you've entered this world and you have have no siblings no parents no you know, you just popped into existence i think you could still find things to to actually appreciate in this but we all have family relationships we all have friends and and you know, people that we interact with um I, I'm going to try and sum this up in a soundbite that I think Corriere is very good at illustrating functional families in dysfunctional situations. So many of his films, Shoplifters is another prime example, take uh, unexpected pairings of people, sort of parents and children, uh, put them together and actually then see them opening up and you know having emotional revelations. But it's not the nuclear family classic to adults and two children situation typically uh, our little sister is another one where there's three sisters and then a, then a half sister who's coming into that family he, he's very keen to sort of tease away at these things and see what happens to us as families in the modern age but his films are just filled with such warmth and humanity that you can't help but be embraced by them i don't think this is quite top tier corridor um but you know even even corridor on an average day is still better than most uh, and i can see why he's spoken of in such fond terms in that legacy of japanese cinema from the, the 1560s uh, the likes of Ozu and, and other fantastic filmmakers, you know, he's very much making a stamp uh, in the 21st century of a similar ilk. Well, I was good. that was going to be my next question because I, despite hosting this, this formidable film show sometimes, and this is one of the things I love about doing this show, actually, because it takes me out of my comfort zone. I've never seen a Corita film. Should I be starting with this? Should I start with Shoplifters? What should be my first one to go and see? My take would be Mabarosi. I think I saw that at the arts um, a few years ago when there was a Corita season, and it was my introduction to and before uh, Shoplifters came out um, as it won the Palm Door, and I was blown away, and I just... I think Mabarosi definitely to start with. It's more um, kind of head-on. It's a bit more darker than what you get into with Corrida. And then and maybe Still Walking. I think that's about a family that is navigating their journey through grief, but it's done in a Corrida way, which you definitely get to know who he is as a director through that. Okay, and you said earlier that he... Cho- he's chosen to set this in Korea because of the big, because the, you yeah. know the baby box phenomenon is a, is a very Korean thing. Mm. Is there also a sense that he is an outsider? Is making? I mean, I, like I say, he made an English language film, but I believe it was based in Paris. The last, you know, um, mm. one prior to this, is there a sense? Does he bring that sort of outsider's look into? I, I don't believe so. I think with the, like we've mentioned the actors um, many times throughout this, but um, because he's chosen actors that are so well known throughout Korea and that are just a part of the everyday life there, that you see them at adverts, you see them everywhere. I feel like this, this isn't an outsider's take. This is He's really involved in this kind of subject matter and he's bringing these really big names so that it's the most, inclu- it's very inclusive for like, I guess, the Korean generation. Uh, yeah, I think it, it's interesting for me that this is probably a higher profile cast than most of his Japanese films. You know, a, a lot of the people who appear in his, his other films would probably be most famous for Koreeda's films. Uh, I, I wonder if maybe that's some of being able to anticipate the, the language barrier and have more trust in the actors themselves without having to cross that. Uh, but it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a very... Yeah, because it's alien to us, we don't have this scenario. I believe there's one in Japan, which is what what performed his interest, and then there are a number of these in in Korea. But you know, it, it's it's a great way of of understanding an alien situation, but something that we can all be empathetic with, because so many people in life want to be parents, and you know, this tells the side of the story of not only those people who are struggling and and want to actually give up that child, but also we see couples who are willing to pay to adopt to actually get a child of their own because of their own situation. Last question: It is um, billed as a 
a com- I think it's kind of billed as a comedy drama, right? Is it funny? Is, is, do you laugh in this film, or are you laughing in a sort of sentimental? Are you laughing in a sort of bittersweet way, or is it? Or are there, are there genuinely comic moments? There's um, there's a, a little boy that they take they, from their orphanage uh, throughout this film. Um, his name is Hei Jin throughout, and he gives the comedic relief. And I think not just to like us, but to the group as they're traveling on this road trip. He is he takes them to the fairgrounds. You know, he's he's the person that gets aside who Wu Song goes to in the end. Um, he's he's the comedic relief that you need throughout and I feel like putting that through a child's perspective um, it really it lifts the film uh, I, I would completely agree and, and Correa is so good in so many of his films at being able to gently move the needle from you know comedy, humour, lightness to more intense drama uh, and to do that subtly and sensitively uh, and then just completely embrace you on the point he's trying to put across Wonderful. It sounds like a, just a delightful hug of a film. And um, Broker is a certificate 15 and is showing at the Cambridge Arts Picture House. Cambridge 105 Radio. In 1960s Cambridge, the Rolling Stones performed at the Rex Ballroom, Chris Farlow was on stage at the Alley Club, and Helen Shapiro played live at the Regal Cinema. On Sunday mornings, John Gannon takes you back to the swinging 60s with music and memories. John Gannon's 60s scene, Sunday mornings at 8 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. Hello, you are listening to the Cambridge Film Show. I am Ashley Whitaker. We've just had Emma Marchant on because we're co-hosting. That's what we do these days. Um, you've already missed Cocaine Bear, Creed 3 and Broker. And we're about to take you on a little ghost hunt now with We Have a Ghost. We're all here trying to get a fresh start. Nothing like bad happened here, right? You moved into the house of death. Everyone says it's haunted. 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 <laughs> no, 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 don't go. I'm We have a ghost. Okay. No, I'm serious, Kevin. Caught him on camera. Oh, we gotta show mom. No, 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 no. entire world is captivated with Ernest. Three million views in six minutes. That's money. Our whole street's kind of bad thanks to you guys. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not funny. So, after finding a ghost named Ernest, played by David Harbour, in his house, young Kevin's family become overnight social media sensations. But then when Kevin and Ernest start to investigate the mystery of Ernest's past and how he died, the CIA get involved. This is a straight-to-Netflix vehicle 
fronted by David Harbour off of Stranger Things. Sounds a bit weird and low rent. Is it actually entertaining, Lorcan? Um, so, so Netflix, they need content, right? Um, content. So they just Constant need something content. to put on the platform. Oh, this doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this t- over two hours long? Is it All, really? Not only is it two hours oh, long, is, but yeah. I think it's like the algorithm something like if you watch more than 60% of the thing, then it counts as a view. It's something like that. So like, like on YouTube, if you just click yeah. play, it counts. So the longer you make the film, <laughs> the less likely people are like to watch count as watching that content and the first hour of this film is nothing it's monotone drab nothing (laughs) there's three characters that find out they have a ghost in their house and they're just like oh okay maybe should we do anything about this um and that's they are all pretty nonchalant i'll give you that and i'm i'm not scared of ghosts so i wouldn't i'm super into them biggest fan guys come visit me but yeah to be either not scared at all or not even interested yeah that you're right yes, about ever, that. The, the emotional state of all the characters for the first hour stays at precisely two, <coughs> and it's very disinteresting to watch. And Christopher Landon's the director. He did Happy Death Day, and he did uh, Freaky. I loved Happy Death Day. They are funny slasher well, films. High They're concept, not horror right? films. Very, yeah, very, so as soon Happy as you Death hear, Day 2 actually worked. As soon as you hear the premise, you're like, oh, okay, the, the, the mind runs with all the possibilities of this premise. This premise, we have a ghost. Like, that's it. And they don't know what to do with it for most for the most part. It's a wasted ghost, Emma. You, you seem I'm, apoplectic with rage. No, no, not at all. I was going to say, I completely agree with Lorcan. For me, this was a film of two halves. The first half was so dull, I wasn't sure I was going to make through it. But then the second half, I found some charm. I do think that... Um, Jahi Diallo Winston, who's playing Kevin, and Isabella Russo, who plays Joy, his sort of next. They have a very sweet team. I mean, it crams a lot of stuff in, doesn't it? It's trying to be many things to all people. I cannot understand why this didn't come out of Halloween. And Vicky's completely disagreeing with me. I thought they had a sweet romance. I thought that was cute in the second half. But why cast David Harbour and not let him talk? She's very upset, people. I have many questions. I have the David Harbour question, but I think Vicky wants to talk about the rest of the cast. Is that what you're after? No, no, exactly. I just, I did not believe the teenage romance or any of this. I thought uh, Kevin Presley, it was going to go in a different way, a different light. Um, That's why I liked that it didn't. Because I know where you're coming from. But also, let's face it, we've been watching some Netflix stuff on this film. Like, you people, they had to CGI the kiss. That's how bad the chemistry was between those two. Did they really? Or did you just put that hate out there because you hate it? I don't know. It might be clickbait. But (laughs) we talked talked long and hard about how poor that chemistry was. And I did believe these two a little more. I thought they were sweet. Yeah, I absolutely do believe this. Um, I'm old. (laughs) What you were saying about the first hour being completely uh, a nothing, I I do agree. I I love Christopher Landon. Happy Death Day, Lorcan can say, is like one of my favourite films of all time is an amazing I expected really big things um, from well maybe not because it is a Netflix film but I expected better things and the first hour is quite dull uh, to the point where I think my housemate just went on his phone and he never came off it but at the same time uh, it does pick up speed you do get there the last hour even though I could have switched it off I stayed and I mean that's not too much of a compliment but you get um, more more interest, you know. Tigna- finished it. High praise. <laughs> Tignatero is becoming, I think, a new Netflix darling um, actor, and I'm great ca- stand-up comedian. Too. Yeah. I think I'm just on board with she. She brings light or life to anything she's kind of in, and she definitely has kept me throughout a lot of films recently. And I think 
overall, maybe it's not the best Friday night watch, but it, I still quite liked it and I have rated it maybe higher than I'm now thinking back on. But it, it was an Don't okay watch. Don't be peer pressured into lowering your score. <laughs> can I, yeah, can I say, we, we, when, we, we obviously have a WhatsApp to discuss what we're going to review on the show. And in fact, one of the reasons we went for this, because Lorcan pointed out that it has Jennifer Coolidge in it. You heard her in the trailer and she is literally like solar hot right now. She's in that film for such little time and for such a pointless thing that I swear to goodness, I think they just put her in like 10 minutes ago. It's like Jennifer Coolidge, she's hot. Let's put her in. Let's let's do it because that it was just the most pointless part. And it has no bearing on the plot. Nothing springs yeah. from it. It is just the Jennifer Coolidge show for 10 minutes and then and she's gone. She you you are sold the film on her appearance, but you're also mainly sold the film on David Harbour as the main character. He is the ghost that we have doesn't speak. I think he did some great eyebrow acting. Is he entirely wasted? Did we need a famous person in that role? Is he clickbait? I don't think David Harbour could have said no because this is the perfect kind of acting role where, like, they're like, okay, we want to have the character not say anything, but we'll pitch it to some actor as you have to act without words, and that's just <laughs> such. That's such. He's a, a middle. That's such guy. a worm on a line yeah, for actors. So he was yeah. probably like, you know what. I can do this. And Aww. he's trying his heart out. And like, I don't hate David Harbour. He's fine. He acts with his he's face fine, fine yeah. enough. He's fine. Um, but I just think the film, the first hour is unforgivable. There is, there is some candy in the second half, but it's just not worth it. That, yeah, I haven't seen Happy Death Day, but you're right. Freaky is really fun. That's the body swap. Catherine Newton, Vince Vaughn, serial killer body swap, and that's, that's fun and and pacey as well. And and you're you're so. We, I know we talk about this. Ad it infinitum, makes fun of itself. The other two. This is half an hour too long, and perhaps half an hour shorter. And bring it out at Halloween. Why aren't I working for Netflix with this kind of genius? <laughs> that that was going to be my next question. So it's where is Netflix going with this? Because they did start several years ago bringing out things like Happy Death Day which wouldn't have gotten enough producers behind it to get it into the cinemas and it is fire it worked out but it was a risk and this is what straight to streaming films should be they're risks that big production companies don't want to financially take but we're kind of getting watered down trash on all the streamers now and it's just tween age placation content really yeah I think well I think I think we mentioned before on the show that Apple TV Plus seemed to be pulling it out and make, putting some effort <laughs> into into their productions a little more while Netflix is dwindling um, do you think this is wise. built around an algorithm we know that that does happen is I mean I, th- I think it's just Netflix Netflix has certain people in contract they love Correct. David Harbour they love that kid from Harry Potter that they shove in everything Melling the Harry, Harry Melling something. Harry Melling no Harry Melling Harry um, Melling Oh. He plays Neville Long. No, he Neville does Long- not. Dudley Dursley. Dudley Dursley. Dudley Dursley. Oh. They, they, have this, they have this little cast. Like, okay, the, like people like these people. We'll and Anthony Mackie, then, actually, yeah. as well. He seems to be in a lot oh, of yeah, he was stuff. Anthony Mackie. Pop- and I'm, he's, you know, again, he's nothing, really. He doesn't seem to have any... The relationship is meant to be sort of... You know, there's meant to be some uh, building of bridges between the family as well, but that just goes nowhere. Yeah. Anthony Mackie is the least Anthony Mackie I've ever seen <laughs> him in this. Um, he doesn't... He, he honestly, he was he was very unfavorable. Um, I had bad feelings towards him throughout, apart from the last maybe ten seconds where Anthony Mackie then just plays himself and is likable instantly again. Um, this film 
does not bring favour to a yeah, lot of actors in It doesn't in play to those charms, no, right? So he's, like, he's actively trying to play dislikable and it just yeah. feels uncomfortable. And you're it like, really why are you does. doing this? Because this isn't adding to the story and we don't need this extra level of... It's a very strange film. Now I talk about it. <laughs> maybe putting too much thought into what is a low-level piece of trash. Are we maybe going back then to the old Hollywood setup of ways where we just have certain actors under contract, under contract so you've just got to keep feeding them vehicles no matter whether they're good or not. You've just got to fulfil these contracts and get certain amounts of content out every year and this is just what to expect now from streamers. Well, to be fair, unless we researched um, what was coming out on Netflix that week, we, I, I wouldn't have seen this. It's not on any Netflix homepage. I, it has just I've been moved. made for the for the point of it being made, I feel like, <laughs> under contract. And uh, that's probably a shame because there's a lot of things that that money could have been used for, maybe something a bit more interesting. But at the same time, if you want to watch a streamer on a Friday night, it's not my favourite take, but it is, you know, I made it through, so. <laughs> High praise, indeed. If you want to watch something that you can finish... And put not, that on the poster. I made it through the Cambridge Put it show. on the poster. We Have a Ghost went straight to Netflix and probably didn't even deserve that much. We're going to have, luckily, an upward turn now, I think, in terms of quality. We're going to have a special little chat about a special little weird interesting thing called subject my name is margie ratliff from the staircase and i give my permission to be filmed i understand it's a documentary about documentary subjects documentaries are having a moment they're doing great at the box office they're becoming a part of pop culture the hunger for great nonfiction has grown and grown and grown and grown Many choose to be on camera because they want to set the record straight. We know that documentary can have a concrete impact on our world. It's important for people to understand that a subject, that's a real person. I had been invisible for a long time. I was able to get my mom a new car, a new house. I wanted this. I didn't really give thought to how it might affect my children. My siblings and I were so young. We didn't have a choice. So, focusing on the ethics and responsibility inherent in documentary filmmaking, Subject examines well-known documentaries of the past decade, reveals their impacts, how much money they made, and kind of the success they had or not the success they had um, for the lives of the people that were the on-screen subjects. This is only showing at the Arts Picture House in town and Vicky from said Arts Picture House is it basically a documentary about documentaries? Because that's what it sounds like. It is absolutely a documentary about documentaries. Right. Um, it, chose, it chooses to focus on uh, a, a few certain ones which have become a bit more infamous um, in the genre. So we have The Staircase. Um, yes. Yeah, a lot of people have had... recently went to trial last year or at the beginning of this year, did it? No, um, it was it was it dealt was with quite a, quite a while ago, almost a decade oh, ago. there's another new documentary that came out. Mm. I listened to it on my murder podcast ages ago. <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. So The Staircase, <laughs> is, um, it was dealt with around about a decade ago. You have, you know, Hoop Dreams, which a lot of people um, would know from the basketball community. It's okay. like, it focuses on a teenager that wants to make go to the NBA and it's a, a lot of a chunk of his teenage life it has the wolf pack uh, done by Chris uh, Crystal Massal um, about you know a, a group of teenagers that have been locked in their home under a, a, a abusive father wow. and the d kind of films that they made in that time 
And then you have things like Capturing the Freedmans and uh, Bing Lu's Mind the Gap, and then they end with The Square. And uh, the directors have really narrowed the feel of documentaries. And I feel like they narrowed it um, because what they want to show in light of this documentary is just kind of the ethical impact that comes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, they they make it very present that we're in the golden age of documentary making. Um, there is basically a new documentary on Netflix probably mm-hmm. each week. Um, I think really for people's interest in entertainment and we've seen throughout the pandemic I know the pandemic darling that was Tiger King how influential and impactful a lot of people looking into these stories can be and it's just kind of um it, basically you have Margie Ratcliffe from The Staircase saying that her story that basically her father was accused of murdering her mother who fell down the stairs the and same way his ex-wife died guys <laughs> the first wife <laughs> um, so um, and the injuries didn't correlate and so they made this documentary to kind of help assist the dad's trial and Margie Ratcliffe oh. went on this publicity tour um, there was director Q&A um, and she basically was saying that when she recorded that she was a child and she just wanted something to let her dad free because she didn't believe she did it because that's her father Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously that was made 10 years ago and then she's had to live with that for 10 years and then stands as a piece of evidence it does and then it came onto Netflix and then it boomed it took off again and suddenly her life was all about this and then because it boomed on Netflix it got a HBO show starring Colin Firth Tony Collette and Sophie Turner who then came to her and asked her for advice on how to play her character about something that was the most traumatised thing of her life Mm. and it's just a kind of how um, it deals with all these documentaries but mainly it doesn't even um, include the directors of this it only talks to the stars because a lot of these people didn't get paid for their roles documentary directors have like a kind of code of ethics the difference difference in pay and wage and saying that a lot of people aren't compensated for telling their stories because they think it can alter the story. But realistically, as soon as that camera is turned on, it's going to alter how they tell the story anyway. Yeah, in and print you don't get paid a lot because they think it makes it more ethical and truthful. You're not goading someone into being salacious. They mm-hmm. want you just to just tell your story tell and your that's story. your payment. Yeah, basically that's it. But these documentaries, so Hoop Dreams, is they've included this because they said that when they first filmed Hoop Dreams, they didn't know how much money they would make so the actors weren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. But it went on to become this huge phenomenon and to the point where the directors are like, obviously when it starts making money, they then gave that to the main the main person in Hoop Dreams who then could buy you know a house for his mother and you know he's managed to live his life off of this documentary and I feel like it's deserving because that's his story you know this is Arthur Agee and he's talking about how um, you know you see his dad in this documentary who passed following this documentary and this is very like these are subjects that they also go into the realm of the name subject like are these are people yeah. like these are people who are laying their stories out for people's entertainment basically and just how all the ethics involved in that and it really is a love letter to documentaries I have lots more questions but we have two more films to squeeze in Indeed. but really quickly does it come down on the negative side you think for all the documentary subjects or it do, com- does it few people feel like their lives are made better it's the negative it's the positives it what, it's what comes after it's just really a, a telescopic like a microscopic view of what documentaries are and everything that comes with filming one sounds amazing subject is only showing at the arts picture house in town if you'd like to go and see it we're back to netflix now with something i think is a little better emma's going to lead us through a discussion of the strays mm-hmm. 
Welcome to our home. <laughs> Wonderful morning, isn't it? You're practically one of us. Practically. Mm. Rose. Good morning, Miss Williams. As Ash so kindly pointed out, we are turning back to Netflix and streaming for the new original, The Strays. This is the debut feature from British actor-director Nathaniel Martello-White, and it follows the story of Neve, played by Ashley Medekwe. She is leading the perfect, or seems to be perfect, upper-middle-class life in the suburbs of England, but the appearance of two strangers in her neighbourhood threatens to unravel her life, or are they even strangers? Right, Ash, it's only you and me that have seen this. You. Um, it felt like it fulfilled for me into this sort of new subgenre made so popular by Jordan Peele, shall we say, of sort of socially aware, racially it socially was very aware. Jordan Peele, I thought that. Well, that was my question. So oh, I interrupt sorry. Me. <laughs> so racially socially aware thriller, which was made so popular by Jordan Peele's Get Out and Us. I thought about Get Get Out in particular so much during this. Is it a homage that we should appreciate, or is it a bit of a rip off? Uh. Is is a homage a rip off? Is a rip off an homage? Um, it's it. Mm, I, can you rip it off when it's just a feeling you get? It's the tension created on screen, and the actors playing the two that come into the family later. Um, they create such kind of maniacal chaos, and they're not quite human in their weirdness, aren't they? They're kind of otherworldly things entering this home, and it was. Yeah, it did remind me of Jordan Peele vehicles, but it didn't seem like a, a direct rip-off to me. Yeah, because what we haven't said is that obviously this starts off at the beginning. It felt like a bit like a Black Mirror episode at the beginning. Yes. It starts off with 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 um, Ashley Medeco's character in a in a sort of in a in an unpleasant flat, basically looking at articles of really how black people are being let down in the UK through education, and then it slips forward. It says many years later, almost mm. like a fairy tale, mm. and it goes forward to a leading this very. Like, like we said, up across life, but she clearly has sort of. She, it, it is, a, it is, a, it is a film about black identity. She yeah. is mixed race. Her children are now mixed race, but she, she won't allow her natural hair to, to come it, out. Yeah. And there is this. I found the the the, the, the sound because she's wearing obviously. Oh, the scratchy wigs, of the, the wigs. Scratching ah. of the wigs when, you, you you know when obviously things are beginning to unravel. I thought that was a quite a clever. Um, our way of, mm. of sort of showing how her life is beginning to, to disintegrate before, like you say, these two characters played by Bookie Backray, who was that marvellous, marvellous discovery in Rocks. Do you remember that film in the pandemic that came out about the, 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 the girl whose mother just walked out, the alcoholic mother who just walked out and she had to get herself and her sister's school right. really, yes. really good. And a guy called Jordan Meary, who I've never seen before playing Marvin. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think, I think this film was fun. In a, you know, and I think it, it had something to say. It perhaps doesn't end quite... It maybe fizzles out a tiny bit, but we just talked about how We Have a Ghost is two hours, six minutes. This is 96 minutes, I think, or something. Mm. It is short and sharp and to the point. It's, a lot it, happens. Yeah, and, and it crams a lot in, and it is, it's nothing if not entertaining, even though maybe the balance sometimes between... You know, sort of the the, the slow-burning thriller ambiance of the first half and then you do just end up in kind of like wacko violent territory. Yeah, I don't know 
I'm not sure that it knows what it wanted to be. So when you see the Jordan Peele films, you feel, well, not at ease throughout because they're wild rides, but you know what you're in. And this, I think, didn't know whether it wants to be extremely avant-garde or very funny or very dark and scary. And it did kind of jolt between those things. But I loved it for its layers. It's only the, I think it's the first feature length thing the director's done. So it's a very new director and you really could tell it did. It seemed very green, but I felt like I knew exactly what he was getting at. There's lots of layers of story of this. So on the top level, we have black identity and underneath that we have some comments on class. But then I think right underneath, especially with what the mum does right at the end of the film, we have comments on the expectations of women and how choking family can be and how easy it is for men and what it, I think it was more to do with gender than anything else, but it's under so many layers of stuff that was just a little bit shoddily handled by a newish director. But I think it was pretty phenomenal, and I think given a little more money and a little more of a director's eye with a little more experience, this would have been incredible. I think it had a sheen, you know, and the, the, it has a sheen to it as well. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty well lit for a Netflix. I like, I say, I liked, uh, yeah, I, I like that sort of almost fairy tale sheen. There was a touch of like, don't worry, darling, at the beginning, and then you end up in house yeah. invasion horror. There's, like you said, there's They're a, a lot. film fan. This director for sure. There's yeah. lots of homages. Yeah, I liked it. and I like, I think, and, and the more I think about it, the more I, I, I do think it was a well. It was not what I expected from the Absolutely picture. Absolutely not. Um, I, I mean, and it was nice to see Ashley Madekwe back. It turns out we have a huge revenge fan in the studio here in Will Johnson because I and and Vicky revenge is back in the day but I haven't seen her really in anything since then and she looks incredible and it's a it's a decent performance because it is a strangely mannered and then maybe the very end makes you realize that but um, creepy and she's kooky we gotta move Emma we gotta move you need to squeeze it's on Netflix it's It's a certificate 15 see that rather than we have a ghost it's called the strays watch the strays don't watch we have a ghost we gotta squeeze one more film in inside of four and a half minutes everyone this is close. Right, very little time for the trailer there because we really wanted to get Lorcan to talk about a film that I really hope he enjoyed because you were very excited about this. So yeah, let's, yes. So yeah. let's hope we did. So this is from French director Lucas Dante, and it's called Close, and it's the story of two 13-year-old boys, Leo and Remy, and they are, you know, they are incredibly good friends, and then perhaps some question marks are raised over this. There are some things said at school which, about, you know, relating to their relationship, and it's then about the fallout that can happen when these questions are raised. Lorcan, I haven't seen a Lucas Don't film. Um, this looks heartbreaking to me. Would I, would I, we, went, we saw The Whale and you thought I was going to cry my eyes out in The Whale and I didn't. Would I find this desperately upsetting? I think you would find it upsetting. There's quite a few big tear-jerking moments throughout the film. Um, and you, like you said, it's, it's, it is it is correctly advertised as a film about a friendship breaking down. Kind of these these two boys move into the French equivalent of like high school or middle school, and immediately uh, the other boys are kind of like, "Oh, you guys are very close. Are you wimps?" They drop the f bombs, um, and then the girls are very much kind of like they don't want to be hanging out with two boys who are like kind of intimately close because uh, it's just uh, unusual to them. Um, but it it there is 
there has been a bit of a, a mismarket, not a mismarket, the marketing is still really misleading as to the content of the majority of the film. I think that turn in the plot is going to potentially put a lot of people off because it's, uh, it's a lot more affecting than it's advertised as, um, but it's an absolutely fantastic film. Um, I haven't seen Luke, uh, a Lucas Dunk film. I think Girl is the only other feature he's done, I think, which I haven't seen. Um, but I might look it up because uh, they uh, contrasted to, because it's been nominated for Best uh, International Feature at the Oscars. Yeah. And, um, for Belgium, by the way, everybody, for Belgium, not France. Yes. I'm so sorry. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's no fat on this film. It's 100 minutes. There's very little dialogue, but everything everyone says feels necessary and succinct. There's lots of dwelling on, dwelling on characters' faces and close-ups, but it's all because the performers are very good and they're doing exactly what they're supposed to. And compare this to something like, I'm sorry, Emma, All Quiet on the Western Front, which has quite a lot of grizzle on it, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> well, I no think... one is, Lorcan. <laughs> I'm, jo- <laughs> I'm joking. It's still going to win the Oscar. It'll still, it'll still I know, that's the, the sad thing. So just, just just like this beautiful little character drama that's very well directed, very well performed. I think it's a shame that it, it's getting overlooked. But, um, but how fabulous that this director is only 31. Yes, no. Um, so surely there must be great excitement to see what he has. And also, I, I'm presuming he's coaxed two incredible performances out of the two stars of this film, Eden Dabrin and Gustave Duval. Yes, no, he, you can tell he uh, he was able to ingratiate himself with the kids because he got very natural performances out of all of them. Uh, and the, the the relationship between the boy and the other boy, Remy's mother in particular, is um, quite heartfelt. And there's, he mines a lot of gold out of that relationship. And like I say, there's not a lot of dialogue. It's very succinct, but... Um, it'll hit you at all the right parts at all the right moments. Well, thank you, Lorcan. So that sounds like an absolute tip-top recommendation. It's close, and it's showing at the Cambridge Arts Picture House, and it is Belgium's entry for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, so you know it's going to be good. Right, we have somehow reached the end of another week. It flabbergasts me every week we do this. Thank you so much to our reviewers, Will, Lorcan, Vicky, and Mark. Thank you very much to Ash for co-hosting so delightfully. And we will be back in two weeks' time with all our other top tips for streaming and cinema and here's a tiny bit of guess what to play us out with the cambridge film show on cambridge 105 radio